This is Steve Robbins. I'm the host of the Get It Done Guy podcast, and I'm here today with Michael Port, who I have known for years. He started his career revolutionizing the world of solopreneur sales with uh, um, Book Yourself Solid, a book that absolutely put him on the map. And now he is working in the world of public speaking and presentations. Uh, welcome, Michael. Thank you so much for having me. So just so I can make sure to get your bio right, how exactly should I explain what you're doing now to people? Because you are to presenters as, you know, as, as a maestro is to someone playing a kazoo. So. Well, thank you very much. So I'm the CEO and co-founder of Heroic Public Speaking, and we have a consumer division. So for individuals who want to get better at public speaking, they come here to our headquarters in Lambertville, New Jersey. And then we have a corporate division and we work with very, very large companies. Uh, and for them, Usually, we go to them. So one of the things about large companies that all of us know and love is that large companies are incredible meritocracies, right? You show up, you do a good job, you have the best ideas, everyone instantly recognizes those ideas, and you get promoted, and pretty soon you're CEO. This is, I just want to double check that this is the way that, that we agree things work, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Santa Claus is real, uh, as is the Easter Bunny. Ah, yes. I, I thought that. Mm -hmm. No, look, were... the fact of the matter is, uh, unfortunately, the best idea doesn't always win. And that's a major problem uh, in today's corporate environment. So, in fact, we have a client, one of the, uh, we have a, an NDA, so I can't mention the client's name, but they're one of the largest uh, entertainment clients in the world. And they tell stories. That's what they do very, very well. But they called us up because they said, listen, we, we want some help telling stories. And we were a bit confused because we said, listen, yeah, we're, we're very good at this, but you're kind of the best in the world. And they said, yes, but the problem is internally, a lot of our creatives have to pitch their ideas to the C-suite. And then the C-suite uh, either gives a thumbs up or thumbs down. So, you know, the creatives don't always get to green light the ideas. And what we're finding is that the best pitches are winning, not the best ideas. And we want to level the playing field so that the best ideas win. So we want you to help make sure that everybody can pitch at the same level because we know that there's, uh, there's a methodology behind presentations, pitching, uh, performance. Uh, and if we learn what those methodologies are, what the processes are, then you know, we, can, uh, we can produce much better ideas uh, that actually get to market. That makes a lot of sense. And well, first of all, do you have any sense for why people aren't good at pitching ideas? Because it seems to me that if you talk to a five-year-old and the five-year-old has some idea for how they're going to build a castle out of toothpicks and bubble gum, they're great at getting that point across. And you talk to the same five-year-old 10 years later and they're an incoherent mess, not just because they're a teenager. Sure. What is it? What happens? Well, there's a number of factors uh, at play. Number one, I think it is worth recognizing that there are some people who are more naturally inclined to tell better stories. You know, we all have strengths and we all have uh, weaknesses. And, you know, if you are someone who is very, very strong in various communication themes, then you're probably more inclined uh, to to communicate in a way that moves people. And as a result, you've also had a lot more experience doing it. If you're somebody who's very, very high in execution, uh, but not very, very high in communication strengths, then you, know, you might not uh, spend a lot of time focusing on how to give better presentations or 
better communicate your ideas. So I think it is fair uh, to at least, you know, say right at the beginning, some people are going to be more inclined to do this and some people are going to be more talented. Now, with that said, there, there's still opportunity for all of us to improve our ability to get our ideas across. And that's where the craft comes in. And so if we learn the craft, then we can improve our communication regardless of where we're starting. So essentially you're saying there really is a set of, I'll call them best practices, even though I think the term is overused, but there is a set of best practices and things that go into being public speaking, to being a good public speaker. Some people naturally have these, some people don't, but wherever you are on the scale, you can learn to move forward. If I got yeah, that right? You, you absolutely have that right. You know, for example, when you're presenting an idea, how much time do you take to actually structure the idea? Most people would say, well, actually not much. <laughs> I kind of go in there and I think about it a little bit and then I just go. Well, that's winging it. That's, that's not necessarily a very effective way uh, to create the outcome that you want. For example, if you go see Hamilton on Broadway, you're going to pay a lot of money for those tickets. A lot of money. Why? Because it works every single time they do it. Why? Because they have worked on making it work for years, even before it ended up on Broadway. Now, if you go to see an improv show, you're going to pay a lot less for those tickets. You may pay only $45 compared to $1,500 or more for Hamilton. Why? Because it may work some nights, but it may not work other nights, even though they're professional performers, even though they do have structures that they use, you know, when they are doing their improv to produce an outcome, it's still more like winging it. It's unstable. And as a result, you don't always get a great outcome, which means it's less valuable, which means people don't pay as much to see it. And so when we're thinking about the work that we do, the presentations that we do, what do we want to be? Do we want to be, you know, uh, somebody who can deliver every single time we deliver? Or do we want to just kind of hope we'll rise to the occasion and, uh, and, and we'll just see how it turns out? Now, when you say deliver every single time, in the case of Hamilton, they're delivering the same show every night. Yeah. In the case of somebody who's pitching ideas, well, on one hand, I might have to pitch my same ideas to a dozen different people or even more than that if I'm trying to get something adopted on an enterprise-wide basis in a large organization. But I can also imagine that not only do I need to pitch the same idea multiple times, but over the course of a year or several years, I'm going to have to pitch many different ideas. Are you saying that there is preparation. So it's, it's clear to me how preparation and rehearsal helps me present the same thing over and over and over many times. Are you saying there's also a way to prepare and rehearse? <clears throat> excuse me. Are you saying there's also a way to prepare and rehearse so that if I have to present several different ideas over time, but maybe present each idea just once or twice, maybe to my small work group, that, I, that there are still skills that I can use to be better prepared even for one-off presentations? Absolutely. So for example, most presentations that are effective have five elements consistently. Number one, there's generally a big idea that underscores the pitch. Now, the big idea doesn't need to be different to make a difference. It just needs to be true for the people in the room, and it needs to be interesting and important. Now, if we don't have a big idea, I don't even know why anybody would pay attention in the first place. So, a big idea is where we start. Secondly, it's important that we are clear on what outcome we are 
promising. Now, the, the idea is, listen, if you adopt this big idea, here's the outcome that we should produce. But if we're not crystal clear on what that is, why would it be relevant to somebody? Mm-hmm. Thirdly, it's very, very helpful for us to be able to articulate the way the world looks to the people in the room. Because when we're asking somebody to change the way they see the world or to think differently or feel differently or act differently, well, that might be provocative. Because if I say, listen, Steve, uh, uh, um, I suggest you change the way you think about X. You, you know, you may have been thinking about X in that way for 25 years. And all of a sudden, somebody comes along and says, listen, change it, think differently about it. And you say, oh, that, that means I've got to reassess the last 25 years of decisions that I've made based on that idea. Well, even if you're interested in the idea, even if you think it might be helpful, if you can say, well, you know, you don't really understand me, you know, I, I'm different or you don't get me or you're different, well, then it gives you an opportunity to say no. But if we can demonstrate that we understand the way the world looks to the people in the room, then they say, well, you know what? He gets me. Steve gets me. I'll listen. So that's a critical component because very often the person who is pitching the idea is a few steps removed from the people uh, to whom he or she is pitching. That's very interesting because as you say that, I am recalling Chris Voss, the FBI's lead hostage negotiator, who yeah, I know wrote a book. Chris. You know, okay, excellent. Yeah. Um, and one of the things he talks about in hostage negotiations is the same thing, is being able to articulate to the kidnappers or the terrorists or whoever it is you're negotiating with how the world looks to them. It sounds right. like there's something very powerful about that. It's incredibly important. And sometimes we make the assumption that people will, will just know that we understand the way the world looks to them. And then, of course, it, being able to understand the way the world looks is one thing, but then being able to articulate it in a way that they say, yep, that is exactly what my world looks like, is another thing. So the third, the fourth element, rather, is being able to identify and then articulate, illustrate the consequences of not adopting the big idea. Because very often people are moved uh, by pain, not just towards pleasure, but if they can see, oh boy, if I do not adopt this idea, if I don't go after this promise, I, 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 things are really going to get worse, frankly. <laughs> this, things are not going to look very good. And then fifth, the fifth element that we see consistently uh, in really effective presentations is being able to articulate, demonstrate, illustrate how the world can look, meaning what rewards will come with the adoption of this big idea and the achievement of this promise. And the rewards often come in, in financial terms, in emotional terms, physical terms, even spiritual terms. It just depends on what you're pitching. Now, how is that different? You said, you said element number two was you have to know what outcome you're promising from the big idea. This is not quite the same as that. This it is, is not, not. No, okay. it's different. So you mentioned uh, my very first book, Book Yourself Solid, that I wrote in 2005. Well, the title of the book is Book Yourself Solid, which inherent in that title is a promise. If you, if you read this book and you apply these protocols, then you should book yourself solid. Well, that's, that's, a, that's an outcome. That's a, that's a result. But it's not necessarily a benefit or a reward because there are things that you're trying to achieve through booking yourself solid. Well, you want financial rewards. You want more money in your pocket. 
You want emotional rewards. You want more confidence. You want more pride. You want more significance. You want more meaning in your work. And if you're book solid, you get it. If you're not book solid, you don't. You might want physical uh, rewards, meaning if you are booked solid, yeah, you may be working more, but you actually may be less stressed because you have a constant steady stream of clients coming in, which then relaxes you, which means less anxiety, which means better sleep, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then spirituality, that's something that everybody defines in their own way. Uh, I would just say for me, it means a connection to purpose. That there's some meaning in the work that you do. And if you are book solid, then you're going to have more meaning uh, in the work you do. Because if you don't have any clients, it's very hard to find meaning there. So there's a slight difference, but it's important to understand that there is one specific promise that then produces lots of benefits or rewards, uh, as we refer to them in this case. Now, is this, you just gave five points. Is this the order in which you would put them in a presentation or you're just going over the five points and there's some way in, you actually incorporate them That's into right. your yeah. pitch? Yeah, so those five elements are incorporated into the pitch, but they don't always have to be incorporated in that order. They are not necessarily sequential in nature, but they need to exist. So if you analyze your presentation, ask yourself, is the big idea clear? Is it crystal clear? So if I said to somebody, what's the big idea behind this pitch? They'd say, oh, it's X. You'd say, yes, that's it. Number two, is the promise clear? Like, is it really, really clear uh, what the outcome will be? Number three, is it crystal clear that I can articulate the way the world looks to these folks? And are the consequences well illustrated? And are the rewards well illustrated? That is, those are five elements that you can use uh, as a, um, to essentially survey your content to see if they are in fact in place. Because if they are, you know that you have the fundamentals in place. Then the next question is, how well can you actually present those fundamentals because we know that you can take a brilliant script, give it to somebody who is either not prepared to deliver it or uh, is not delivering it well and the ideas want to come across effectively and you won't produce the results that you want. And you can give, give a mediocre script to somebody who's an extraordinary performer and often they can do a lot more with that script because they can create an experience for the people in the room that is exciting, that is thrilling because they bring more theatrical elements to it. So think about it like this. When you're presenting, there are a whole slew of elements that are discursive, meaning they add to the discourse, they add to the discussion. So sometimes it's educational components. Sometimes uh, it's, uh, it's dramatic uh, ideas. Sometimes it's theatrical ideas. So if you look at, well, what is the educational or dramatic uh, arc of this presentation? And what are the theatrical elements that exist to help bring it to life? If you took, if you made two circles, you know, and you, you, you overlap just the edge of uh, each circle, right in the middle there is where you'd have the theatrical elements meeting the educational or dramatic narrative and when you have both of those, then you tend to have a very, very exciting presentation. If it's just educational in narrative or it's even just dramatic in narrative without the theatrical elements, it, you know, it could be fine, but it's often flat. 
people often leave and say, well, that was good. Okay, fine. If you have lots and lots of theatrical elements, but very little educational narrative or, you know, dramatic narrative, then they go, okay, that was a bunch of interesting sketches, but I didn't really take away a lot. But the combination of those two things is what makes a great presentation. Got it. So for those people who didn't grow up in a tradition of theater, I'm thinking it can be hard enough just to stand up and say, here are my three bullet points, one, two, three, and sit down. What can we do to actually access the, this theatricality you're talking about? Sure. So I happen to know the secret that you started in theater. So I'm thinking you know, for I you, this, this clearly is something that's been part of, who, a part of your, your DNA for a long time, but that's not true of everyone. No, it is not true of everyone. And look, look I, I have enormous amount of empathy for people that don't feel naturally inclined to do these kinds of presentations. I really, really understand it because over the years now, I've seen thousands and thousands of people who say, I'm not good at this. I'm, I'm nervous about this. I, 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 I'm afraid of being rejected. What if people laugh at me? What if they throw tomatoes at me? You know, all of these fears have become quite commonplace. And I would venture to say this. Sometimes we perpetuate the fear by exaggerating the mythology around it. So, you know, you, I'm sure you've heard, Stever, that the, the number two fear, or the number one fear is public speaking, and the number two fear is death. I've definitely heard that. Yeah, even Jerry Seinfeld has a great joke. He says, listen, so if public speaking is the, is the number one fear and death is the number two fear, that means that if you're at a funeral, you'd rather be in the box than giving the eulogy. Now, if, <laughs> right. if, if you think about that for a second, if you actually asked somebody who is afraid of public speaking, even if, even if they're very afraid of public speaking, if you said, listen, you have two choices right now. You, you, you can either give this five-minute presentation to these 20 people, or you can die. It's up to you. I mean, completely up to you. And I'll help facilitate the death. I have some equipment here that, that can do that. What do you think their answer is going to be? I strongly suspect that they're going to get up in front and make a presentation. I would think so. I have not tested this because uh, that would be insane. But if you, if you actually think about it, th this, this supposed study that people go on about, about how public speaking is the number one fear, is, is misinterpreted. It's misapplied. Uh, and uh, th that original study was not, uh, was not designed to produce uh, the result that people often attribute to it. And we know there are a lot of studies that, you know, become um, misappropriated. And that was one of them. One of the reasons that people do say that, you know, fear is, uh, that public speaking is a great fear is because it's a much more present fear than death. We're not, we don't tend to be afraid of dying day in and day out. If we are afraid of dying day in and day out, then it's likely, you know, we, we're going to be in some serious uh, mental health issues, but it's okay to be afraid of fear. And so then it becomes normal, it, excuse me, it's okay to be afraid of public speaking. So it becomes normalized. And that's a problem because we have much more capacity to do this thing than I think we give ourselves credit for. So I just want to start there. Uh, because I don't want, I, I want to encourage people not to keep buying into this idea that, that it is such a terribly, um, you know, frightening experience 
uh, or, you know, or could somehow, you know, uh, kill you when you try to do it. Right. So, so here I am. I am the person. I've, I've now gotten my courage up. I'm like, okay, I know that I would rather be in front of the room giving the eulogy than in the box. How do I add the, theatricality to that? Because okay. if I walk into a boardroom wearing a pointy hap, hat and carrying my wizard's wand and sprinkling glitter in my path, I, I will get a reception and they will remember <laughs> me. <laughs> but... But is exactly right. So that's, that's exactly right. So <laughs> when we think about theatricality, we want to look at, well, what kind of theatricality is appropriate for this scenario? We're always looking for what is appropriate. We, we like to push the envelope a little bit because then we create uh, experiences that are unique and memorable. But of course, we want to make sure that what we're doing is in fact appropriate for that environment. So yes, the pointy hat, the wand, and glitter may not be appropriate for the boardroom at Microsoft, but nonetheless, more theatricality can help. So for example, one element of theatricality that is critical is conflict. When okay. You, when you hear someone tell a story, a story works when there is a lot of conflict. If there isn't much conflict, people go, eh, oh, okay, whatever. Mm. The conflict is what keeps it interesting. So if you think about a, a story, a story has three acts. The first act is the exposition. It's very straightforward. The exposition is the time, the setting, the place, the given circumstances. Now, what most people do is either offer too little exposition, so we're confused, we don't understand what happens, or so much exposition that we start looking at our watch and, and asking, when, when's something going to happen? It's a little bit like watching a French film. You're like, I, I know something, <laughs> something is going to happen at some point. I'm sure. I'll just wait 20 more minutes. Nothing happens in 20 minutes. Then I'm going to turn it off. 20 minutes later, you're like, okay, I, I, I'm, I already gave 20. I'll give another 20. Something's going to happen. And so <laughs> that's something we got to watch out for. We need only enough information to understand what is going to happen in act two. And act two starts usually with an inciting incident of some kind. The inciting incident creates conflict. Now, what does conflict do? Conflict produces action. Action produces more conflict. More conflict produces more action, more et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. And the more conflict and the more action in the story, the more theatrical it usually is. And then the third act is the resolution. It could be very, very quick. The resolution, if it's a Disney film, is going to be a happy ending. You know, everybody walks off into the sunset uh, and, uh, and, you know, all is well. If it's a Quentin Tarantino film, uh, the, the, everybody's dead. There's blood all over the ground. And the lead is walking away with a sword dragging behind them, uh, you know, with a trail of blood following. That's the end of a Quentin Tarantino film. But it, it's usually quite quick. It's not something that is drawn out. Right, it, except for the Kill Bill movies in which it was <laughs> drawn out for the duration of the entire Well, movie. yes, the killing <laughs> is drawn out for the duration, of course. <laughs> but, the, but the actual resolution usually happens quite quick. So when we are looking at our presentations, we want to look at the conflict. Is there conflict in it? Now, you might say, well, yeah, but I understand I'm not, I'm not just telling a story about these two people who are in conflict with each other. But no. There are, there's conflict in your ideas. So for example, uh, let's use Book Yourself Solid again because you mentioned that earlier. The very first chapter of that book is called The Red Velvet Rope Policy. The Red Velvet Rope Policy. 
And the idea is that if you are a service business owner, you should choose your clients. And you choose your clients by creating a red velvet rope, and then you decide who gets through. So you only work with people that energize you and inspire you. And there's a protocol in there about how you can determine who you do your best work with and who you want to work with the most, and then how to, make, how to identify them and then how to only let them through. Now, to some people, immediately they go, oh, wow, that's great. I want that. But to others, they say, oh, no, 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 no. Or they go, nay, nay, nay. They say, that means I have to say no to business. That's ridiculous. I've got bills to pay. I got to pay the rent. I got, I, got, I got expenses, man. I can't just say no to a client. That's ridiculous. There's the conflict. And so then if I was presenting on that particular idea, I've got to lean into that conflict. I've got to really, really flesh it out and then resolve it. And result, the resolution of that conflict is what we're heading toward. And if I can resolve the conflict for the people in the room, then they are more likely to say, yes, I will adopt that big idea because I want the promise of working only with people that energize and inspire me. And then we've got a successful outcome. Got it. Okay. That, so that makes sense. Let's choose some other example that, uh, uh, well, actually, do you have a specific example from more of a business context in like a multi-person business? Like if you ever help somebody within a corporation, I mean, I'm sure the answer is yes on a pitch for a particular product or service or thing that you could share and show how this would adapt into a corporate context. Sure. So there are, when we work with corporations, we're working with uh, lots of different types of folks. Very, very often uh, we're called in to work with the sales teams because sales, uh, you know, leaders know that uh, if their salespeople present well, they're more likely to, uh, to sell. And if they can't present well, they're not going to sell uh, quite as well. So when you're looking at these types of pitches, say sales pitches, for example, very often the salesperson is focused on sharing information. Here's the information that you need to make a good decision. Well, yes, information is important and people do their best to analyze uh, logically the information that we share. But we also know that people are more swayed by the emotional component of the presentation. Most people are more swayed by the emotional component, even if they do not want to admit that they are. Subconsciously, the emotional component is driving a lot of this decision-making. So that's when we do the same thing. We would look at these foundational five elements. We look at the exposition, the conflict, the resolution associated with those sales pitches so that we can heighten the conflict for the potential buyer and then help resolve that conflict. The idea is to create tension, release tension, create tension, release tension, create tension, release tension, because that's very exciting to a potential buyer when they're considering what their future may look like. So let's say that, let, let's say that I have a product, uh, I'll call it a widget, um, and my widget can increase the profits of a company by 30% in some unspecified way. I would start by saying, 
hey, this widget can increase the profits of your company in by 30%. Then that would be the exposition. And no, not necessarily. So if let's say the product can increase uh, productivity by 30%, the exposition is going to demonstrate the way the world looks right now. It is, here's the given circumstances. Uh, right now, your widget is producing X. Your people are doing Y. They're spending this much time doing da, 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 da. So you're going through, this is the way the world looks. That's the exposition. And they say, mm-hmm, yep, mm-hmm, yep, mm-hmm, yep, mm-hmm, yep. And then you go dig, okay, so what, what, what kind of, what, what issues is that producing? That's where the conflict comes in. Well, if you've got people spending more time on X, that means less time on Y. That means productivity suffers over here, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you're really highlighting all of those issues. And now we're into the conflict portion. Correct. And then we're moving toward the resolution set. If you use this widget instead, this is what the world will look like. And that's where the resolution comes in. And that's where we get the 30% increase, the, you know, the saving time, the saving money, et cetera. So if I am, my background from long, long, long ago was in software engineering. And in software engineering, we would work as a team and I might have some idea for a feature that should be added to the product or, uh, or for a way that something should be designed. And again, I'll use a metaphor for those non-computer scientists in the audience. <clears throat> but uh, I would come to the team meeting and I would say, I've thought up an L-shaped widget that we can use inside of our product that will make the design more efficient. And so I would come in and say, right now, the design uses a K shape, and that would be the exposition. It uses a K shape, and it uses the K shape, and as a result of the K shape, these things work well, these things don't work well, et cetera. Mm. So I might, I might offer a slight uh, suggestion on a yep. reframe for that. Because if you come in first and say, well, listen, I've thought up a, a new way to do X using a K shape, you're going to have people at that table who have uh, a lot invested in the other shape. So mm-hmm. the first thing that they're hearing is, oh, shoot, we have to change. Oh, it's this other thing. I don't know if I like it. I don't like the sound of it. What is it? You know, all these issues start popping up. And, and then that colors their perception of what comes next. So they may already be thinking with a no. Interesting. Okay. However, if you start with the way the world looks and you get them to help, you know, if you've just got five people around the table, you can incorporate their ideas into the conversation to help so that they articulate the way the world looks, which then creates a conflict. You say, well, guys, so this is, this is what we've got. You've helped, you've helped articulate the way the world exists right now for our users and for us as programmers. Um, but there's a, there's a problem there, isn't there? Now, how do I actually motivate the team to want to listen to me without them knowing that I'm going to pitch them on the other shaped widget? Because it seems to, because certainly in the meetings that I've been involved in, if I were just to stand up and say, here's how the world works, people would be like, why are you telling us this? You're wasting our time. We have to get back to our jobs. So I, what, what would I put on the agenda? If I have mm. to have the one sentence that says, Stever is going to be presenting on X, as part of the agenda, what is the X that I should put there that will motivate them to listen to me and to follow me through the exposition, but that won't scare them away and put them in a negative frame of mind from day one? So look at the rewards. So 
if there are financial rewards, emotional rewards, physical rewards, spiritual rewards, identify one or two of those rewards that you think would be very, very appealing to them. And you say, Steve is going to present an idea on how we can have more of Y or less of X. That's it. Not that Steve is going to present an idea on how we should get rid of the L-shaped thing and use the K-shaped thing. So this is interesting because going back to the five elements that you talked about in the, at the start, I'm using how the world can look with the, the, the outcome. I'm using the outcome of the big idea or, right. or how the world looks. I'm using the benefit of the outcome of the big idea as the initial hook. And then I'm going into everything else. Correct. That's why it's not necessarily a sequential process, these foundational five items. It really depends on a number of different factors. Who's in the room, what they know, what they don't know, uh, you know, what else they're being pitched because they may be being pitched 50 different ideas. Now you got to think about how your idea uh, fits in with all the other ideas that they're hearing. Sure. That makes sense. So, um, uh, so I'm noticing actually our time is just about up. So Mm. if you had to summarize what, like, what, what one, two, or three takeaways you want people to walk away from listening to this with, what would that be? What, what can someone just go out and think about today as they're preparing to pitch the next idea? Yeah, think about how people listen to your ideas. What's going through their mind? What questions are they asking? And there are three questions that they ask primarily. And what we've discussed today should help speak to those questions and get you yeses rather than nos. So for example, first thing somebody is thinking when you're presenting the ideas, does this make sense? Does this, is this going to work? Is it going to be successful? And if they say, no, I don't think this makes any sense, they don't go any farther. But if they say, yeah, you know what, this could work, this makes sense. The second question they ask is, huh, well, is it, is it worth it for me? I mean, this might be a good idea, it might be successful, it might work, but, you know, for somebody else. And if they say, man, not really for me, then you get a no. And that's it. They don't go on. But if they say, yeah, I think this, this, is, this is right for me, then you get a yes. But it's still not enough for them to green light whatever it is you're pitching. Because the third question they ask is, well, can this person champion it? I mean, because a lot of great ideas come from people who can't actually deliver on the idea. So they're analyzing you as the person who is delivering the idea and, and, and saying, well, okay, I think it's going to work. I think it's worth our time. But you know what? I don't really think you know, Steve should be the one to lead this. Let's, gonna, let's put this over to Jennifer's plate because I think she's going to execute it better. Or they're going to say, you know what? Yeah, I think it works. I think it makes sense. I think it's really worth our time. And I really think Steve is the one to champion this because he's really got an incredible handle uh, on, you know, what we're going through right now, what we want to achieve, what the consequences are of not achieving this. He really understands the way the world looks to us. And we really want all of those rewards that come uh, as a result of adopting this big idea and achieving this promise. All right. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Michael. Now, how can people find you and your books and products and all that wonderful thing so that they can learn more and master the skills you have to teach? Sure. So heroicpublicspeaking.com. It's a great place to go to start. Uh, we've got lots of uh, good gifts, freebies there. There's a, right now, I know there's uh, 50 tips uh, to making world-saving speeches. Uh, So that'll uh, keep you in tips for a long time. And uh, you can also pick up a copy of Steal the Show anywhere books are sold. Uh, It's a Wall Street Journal bestseller, USA Today bestseller, et cetera. And uh, I like the book. (laughs) Excellent. Thank you very much, Michael. It has been a real pleasure talking with you. Thank you for having me.